Relatively Prime was made possible by the 159 people who parted with their own money to become backers of this project on Kickstarter. I would like to thank all of them, but in particular, I would like to thank Bill Ebener, Peter Krautsberger, and Stephen Lee, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Colin Wright, Jay Frosting, Edmund Harris, Martin Dominic, Cody Palmer, Daniel Greenspun, and Douglas Dollars Stewart. Without all of you, this program would have never become a reality. So thank you. So what what happened with Arthur Samuel back in back in the sixties? So Samuel um, had this idea that uh, computers in the nineteen forties, when he was first introduced to them could be used for non-numeric applications. So all the applications of computers in the early days were like missile trajectories for military-related research, and he was thinking about how they could be used for home use. That led him to IBM, and uh, he was able to get access to computers uh, to do his research in uh, the evenings and weekends spare computing cycles. He uh, focused all his efforts on machine learning. How could a program do what a human does, which is play a game, learn something, and then be better in the next game? He published this fantastic paper in 1959, decades ahead of everybody else, some of the early foundational learning algorithms, then, and he demonstrated them in checkers. In 1963, Thomas Watson Jr., president of IBM, heard about uh, Samuel's work and, and, as a publicity stunt, set up an exhibition match. He played against uh, a fellow named Robert Neely, hyped by the media as, you know, like a world championship contender or U.S. champion. He wasn't a master, only won one tournament that I could ever find, and that was uh, four years later, the Connecticut State Blind Champion. So Samuel's program played Neely, and Samuel's program won a single game. It lost the match, but it won a single game. And that game was a comedy of errors. Neely made the last mistake and then lost. So the game is terrible, but Neely lost, Samuel won, and this was a big media event. It's, it's not fair to call it like the deep blue of the 1960s, but it was in some sense because here you have computers which filled a room like this, big vacuum tubes and, you know, spinning tapes and all the sorts of stuff, the stereotypes. And here's the first time, the very first time that uh, there was a public demonstration of artificial intelligence. And this was a news story and it was an important event. I collected a series of articles over the years that took this uh, story and, and just hyped it. So you see an article that says, you know, computer beats human at checkers, and then you see, you know, computer beats US champion at checkers, or computer beats world championship challenger Robert Neely, to the final thing, computers solved the game of checkers. Well, that's bogus. There's 500 billion billion positions in checkers. People can't comprehend what that is. Empty the Pacific Ocean of water. I'm going to give you a teaspoon. You're allowed to draw, fill the spoon up and drop it into the Pacific Ocean. If you do that long enough, you'll fill the Pacific Ocean. It's about 500 billion billion positions. Imagine a machine that could only do tens of thousands of things per second trying to solve something that's 500 billion billion. That's a five followed by 20 zeros. He did not solve the game in 1963, but that perception was created and the story got copied and propagated. And as recently as three years ago, I found somebody with, you know, who obviously doesn't follow the literature saying, oh yeah, Samuel solved the game of checkers in 1963. It's just wrong.
I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Relatively Prime, stories from the mathematical domain. Today's episode is the story of a man, a game, and a computer program named Chinook. could uh, say your name and then spell it. Jonathan Schaefer, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-C-H-A-E-F-M-E-R. Professor in the Department of Computing Science at the University of Alberta. So why I got into Checkers is um, it was a chance conversation. Uh, I was organizing the uh, World Computer Chess Championship, which was here in Edmonton in 1989 went to lunch one day and I bumped into a couple of colleagues who said, you know, you're doing all this work on computer chess. What about checkers? And I said, well, you know, there was this fellow named Samuel. He built these strong programs in the 1960s. And the more I thought about it, I said, geez, you know, those computers weren't very powerful in the 1960s. So being curious, I started looking at the literature and I thought, well, this is all wrong. What Samuel wrote was 100% accurate, but what the media took out of it and extrapolated was completely bogus. And I realized that checkers wasn't... Um, hadn't been properly addressed. And the timing was right because the problems I wanted to solve in computer chess were turning out to be hard. Checkers has, is essentially very similar to chess, but because of the simpler rules, it meant I could tackle the same problems, but in a simpler setting. So that was part of the motivation. The second part is uh, I had high hopes of winning the World Computer Chess Championship in 1989. I still don't know what happened, but my program crashed and burned. And being a very competitive person, the very next day I started writing a checker program. So first of all, I could reuse a lot of my chess technology, right? Because I'm going to use an alpha-beta search algorithm, and yes, the board, uh, sorry, the pieces are different and they move differently, but that's easy to change. So. Um, it was very quick and easy to, to build a program that could search uh, very deeply in checkers. In fact, what was amazing to me is it could search quite deeply in checkers. The initial program was searching 13 moves ahead, and I thought, oh my god, 13 moves. I can't even visualize a checkers game 13 moves ahead, and this thing already is just like bang, searching 13 moves ahead. But there was one other key property. Uh, checkers is a, um, a game that reduces. You start off with 12 pieces aside, 24, and then if, when there's captures, you get less and less and less and less until eventually somebody has zero pieces and they lose. That was the inspiration for applying a technique called an endgame database. Consider the, the board with, say, one white piece and no black pieces. And I can build a database that has every single one of those positions. So I now have a database of all positions with one piece on the board, and I know which ones are wins. They're all wins, but okay. Take it back one step to two pieces on the board, say a white piece and a black piece. Now I can compute every single position with a white piece and a black piece. And for each one of those positions, I can calculate whether it's a win, a loss, or a draw. Because if it's a white piece and a black piece, eventually I'm going to capture a piece. And now I go, now I only have one piece on the board, and I don't have to do any more work. I look it up in my database, and it tells me the answer. And now for three pieces, say two white and a black, I do the same thing. And so for 1989, I built the four 
what's called I call the four piece databases with all positions four pieces on the board. I had this combination of techniques one that starts you know, at the beginning of the game and does these searches to find the best move but as you get near the end of the game you start um, reaching this database when there's four or fewer pieces on the board you look up information in the database and you get perfect knowledge. It's not like oh this position looks better for me or maybe I'm in trouble it's win loss draw perfect information no error and in 1989 part of the motivation for writing the checkers program is there was the first computer Olympia had 13 games there was chess and checkers and bridge and and a whole bunch of other games and so I started writing in early June 2000 sorry 1999 and 1989 and the Olympiad was in um, August uh, of that summer and I wrote a program, went to London, and I won the checkers competition. So I had a, won a little gold medal. Cool. But what was more interesting is one of the world's best players, a fellow named Derek Oldbury, showed up. And he played some practice games against the computer. And he was impressed. Now, I was impressed that we're searching 13 moves ahead against him, so I thought we are going to crush him. But, you know, these guys are really, really good, and he, he toyed with us. But what impressed me in playing him is that these databases made a big difference. As pieces came off, the program got more and more information, and eventually it would announce the results. You know, like there's 10 pieces on the board, and it said, the game is a draw. Because it had seen all the way and found a forced line into these databases and determined that it was a draw. And Eric Goldberry said, wow, this is really powerful. He said, continue doing what you're, work you're doing. So that's what started it, and I was hooked. Um, but once every two years is the U.S national championship and whoever wins that event earns the right to play for the world championship so the question was how do I prove that I'm good enough to get into the US championship so in June of 1990 I organized a conference at, at here at the University of Alberta and I invited um, two checker grandmasters and the secretary treasurer of the American Checker Federation to come here and the idea was to show off my program and I was hoping that the program would play well enough that they would write a testimonial. Uh, against Grandmaster Leo Levitt, we played 20 games and we won one. We lost four and we tied 15. And I was pretty upset because well, we lost, right? But, you know, one of the players, on the people on the team said, you know, get a perspective, Jonathan. Your project's less than a year old. <laughs> You've already beaten a Grandmaster. And you only lost four to one, you drew 15 times. I mean, he didn't beat you 16 times out of 20. Against the other Grandmaster, uh, all the games were draws. And so I asked the Grandmasters, I said, you know, what do you think of the program? And they said, you know, it's okay. Um, I mean, it plays a reasonable game, but you know, if it went to the US Championship, it'll compete, it'll finish near the bottom, but you know, it'll, it's good. It's, it, it won't embarrass itself. I got them to write a testimonial. I sent a letter off to the American Checker Federation and, and uh, said, please let us play in the master section. And a few weeks later, I got a response and I was very nervous and I opened up and they said that we could play. But a week later, I got a, another letter from uh, the American Checker, Checker Federation. And when I opened it up, I said, I was really scared because I thought, you know, maybe they change their opinion but it said that um, there's cash prizes at the America at the US Open and you're not going to win any of course but just in case 
you're not eligible to win any cash prizes. And I said, fine. I don't need <laughs> the prize money. And tell you what, to make it even better, I'll offer some prizes. Whoever gets to play the computer, whoever plays the nicest game against the computer, here's, I think, a couple hundred dollars uh, prize that we'll make available. Great, they were happy. And then a week or so later, I got another letter from them. They said, oh, by the way, there's trophies at the US Championship. Computers are not allowed to win any trophy. And they were actually worried because um, they had a prize for the top junior, um, the top player under 18 years of age. And since my program was only a year old, they were worried that I might claim to be a junior and take the top junior trophy. So I said, I don't need a trophy. Thank you. <laughs> and then I waited because I expected to get one more letter, which never came. I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about the trophy. The real prize was whoever finished first earned the right to play for the World Championship. And that was the only prize I cared about. So we went to the Mississippi in the summer of 1990. We played uh, the week before in the Mississippi State Championship. Uh, this was a warm-up event. A few of the grandmasters who were going to compete the following week in the U.S. Championship were there. And the program just started winning. We won the Mississippi State Championship, and everyone was agog. I was agog. I didn't expect it. And then the following week, we played in the U.S. Championship. And then things uh, didn't work out quite the way I expected. Um, because we had now built up a reputation, people played against the program extremely cautiously. And the net result is draw, 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 draw. And we're halfway through the tournament. We're in the middle of the pack, and we've drawn our matches. And in analyzing the games, I realized that there was a problem with, with the program, that uh, it was searching so far ahead with these databases. It could search, like, say, 10 moves ahead, and then it hits a position with six pieces on the board. And that position, in no say, is a draw. But it had no concept of how difficult a draw was for the human, right? It's a draw. Well, some draws are trivial to play out, and some could be knife-edged, where one side has got to find all the right moves. And so I modified the program to take that into account. And then the program started winning and winning and winning. And then in round seven of the event, um, the unthinkable happened. In first place alone was the world champion, Marion Tinsley, who was competing. And we were alone in second place. And so in round seven, it was the world human champion versus my program. This was a historic moment. This was the first time in history that a human world champion had to play a computer program. Here was official sanctioned tournament and the, the world champion had no choice. He either had to play us or he had to forfeit. And he played us. And it was a four game match. And the first game uh, went down into history as a classic. Uh, the world champion sacrificed a checker. The program thought it was doing very well. Only began to realize that it was not doing so well and eventually it realized it was lost. It put up an incredible defense, an unhuman-like defense, so completely counterintuitive that eventually Tinsley uh, could not find the one single narrow path to the win and the game ended in a draw. People have regarded it as one of the most exciting games ever in the history of chapters. The other three games in the match were all uneventful draws. We had just drawn a four-game match against the world champion. In the final round, we played the number two player in the world, Don Lafferty, and we won that match. And the final standings um, was Tinsley finished first, we finished second. The rules of the event were such that um, if, the, if the world champion finished first, 
the right to challenge for the World Checkers Championship was conferred to the second place finisher, which was us. And so in the summer of 1990, we were the official challenger for the World Checkers Championship. One of the things that helped us and focused the, the project was Tinsley himself. He volunteered to play an exhibition match against the program. So in uh, the fall of 1990, he came here. We played a 14-game exhibition match. The score was one to nothing with 13 draws for Tinsley. The one game, I'll never forget it, was game 10 on the 10th move. The program found a move that led, led to a draw, but it found another move that it thought was slightly better and led to a small advantage. And on the 10th move, I reached out to play this move. It was the move 32 to 28. So I reached out and played the move 32 to 20. And Tinsley immediately said, you're going to regret that. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, we're searching like 15, 16 moves ahead. And, uh, the program says it's got a small advantage. We had a draw, but now we think we have an advantage. What the hell is he talking about? You know, come on. A few moves later, the program says the game is even. And a few moves later program says Tinsley has an advantage and a few moves later the program says we're in trouble and a few moves later I know we're lost. In his notes to the game uh, Tinsley revealed that on the very next move he'd seen all the way to the end of the game and he knew he was going to win. And if you look at the point from where we made the move 32 to 28 and Tinsley said you're going to regret that to where we actually know that it's a loss, 64 moves. And I thought how the hell am I going to compete with this guy? So that refocused a lot of the project on how do we compensate for the fact that Tinsley has this phenomenal ability to search incredibly deeply. I focused the program on, on what it would take to, to beat this amazing man. Now, I use the word amazing when I describe Tinsley, but uh, I haven't really told you about Tinsley. Tinsley's more machine than man. In 1950, he was an up-and-coming junior player, and he was touted to win the U.S. championship. Um, and he was leading, going, I'd have to check, it was the last round, last round, second last game, something like that. And in a drawn position, in an incredible one-move blunder, he lost the game. And he didn't finish first, I think he finished fifth. He did not earn the right to play for the world championship. And he was very upset. And he disappeared for almost a year. And when he came back, he came back with vengeance. He won the world championship in uh, 1952. And he just kept winning. He entered tournaments, came first, uh, usually by a large margin. From that game in 1950 that he lost to when we met him in, uh, well, say we played him for the world championship in 1992, that's a span of 42 years. So a couple thousand games. How many games did you lose? The answer is, depending upon how you count, it's three or it's five. I would say it's three because he lost a game to Derek Olbury on a trivial one-move blunder. He uh, lost another game uh, on a one-move blunder. And there was only one recorded instance uh, where he was sort of outplayed. If you asked Tinsley, he'd said it was five. 
because when he counts games, he counts every game that he plays. So if you go into a shopping mall and you play 40 players at the same time, that counts as 40 games. And guess what? In a shopping mall, a noisy shopping mall, playing 40 people at the same time, in a trivial winning position, he made a, an embarrassing one-move blunder and he lost. So he says it's five, I said it's three, but it seems to be like about every decade, something snapped in his brain and he made a childish, novice move and lost a game. But in those 42 years, whether it's three or five, it doesn't matter. This man was as close to perfection as you can possibly imagine. So when we played that exhibition match in um, 1990 and lost one to nothing with 13 draws, people were shocked because like, that was close. It wasn't like the louder match, which is 15 to nothing. The Oldbury match was eight to Everything one. he played, he routed the humans. So when 1992 came around, people were very excited looking forward to the match. So, I mean, you're playing against, without a doubt, the greatest human checkers player. Essentially, I mean, one, of course, did you end up winning, but more than that, did you actually go into the game expecting to be able to win? I'm a competitive person, so the answer is yes. I was in there to win, so let me be careful. Um, the ego, the competitive spirit, I'm in there to win because uh, I always want to do the best. The reality is I'm in there to do good research, to publish papers. Sometimes the boundary between the two got crossed. So, yes, I published papers, but beating Tinsley almost became an obsession. Um, he was so good that developing this program and, and bringing it to the level that wouldn't be necessary to win the World Checkers Championship basically started consuming my life. In 1992, the first game was an incredible game. We were in trouble from day one. We played in London, and Checkers, or drafts as it's called in England, is very popular. We have like a few hundred people in the audience, all of the media. You know, the London Times, the Independent, all the major, BBC, they're all there. Cause it's big. It was big news in England. And I'm sitting there on stage, please don't lose, Pete, please don't lose. And the program says our position is grim. And then all of a sudden the, the program goes, beep, it's a draw. It had found a long line that led into the databases and said it's a draw. Now, we had all of the seven piece and part of the eight piece done. And so I offered Tinsley a draw. He refused. This is right. Played on a few more moves, and then I offered him a draw again, and he refused. Played on a few more moves, and I offered him a draw again. And I said, look, Marion, you're only going to tire yourself out. We're in our data databases. The program says it's a draw. He was shocked. He thought he had a win. And so, you're in your databases? That was eye-opening to him. So he agreed to the draw right then and there. Whew. A day or two later, I got an email message back from Canada. And the email message just said, database failure. I knew how valuable the eight-piece databases were, so I had the program. I, I tried to compute as many databases as I could in time for the London map. You compute the data, and then you verify that it's correct. 
And since they were always verifying correct, I said, okay, I'm going to take a chance. I'm not going to do the verification that will allow me to get more databases computed. It was only after the match in London I went back home to discover that the database that failed was the database that was used in game number one. And for some reason, the database was the correct size, but all the entries in the database were zero. And the way things were encoded was zero meant draw, which meant if ever you got in this database, didn't matter which position it was, it was a draw. We got into that database and it was a draw. The position really was a draw. But every move we made was fraught with error because we could have moved to another position in the same database, which was a loss, but the program would have set a draw. So I feel really bad about that because if he kept playing, we might have actually lost the game because of that bug, but we dodged a bullet. Now, game five, I think it was game five, he played really well, we made a mistake, he beat us. Game seven, we were in trouble. Um, we've proven that he had a win, but he couldn't find it and it ended in a draw. And so after seven games, it looked like we were dead. We'd won, he'd won one game and we'd been in trouble in two. But game eight, the program played incredibly well. We had prepared a very complicated line, and in the complications, he made a mistake, and the program just kept finding the right move. At one point, the program stopped, and I had a heart attack because, why is it stopped? Why is it stopped? I mean, has it crashed? And we had to go back to the back room to check the computer. The reason why everything had stopped was because it had searched all the way to the end of the game and it found the win. And a couple of moves later, uh, Tinsley resigned and we shook hands. And there was a huge uproar and people rushed up on stage. They were all congratulating Tinsley. Nobody understood that Tinsley had resigned. The level of play was at such depth that even the masters and grandmasters in the audience didn't know what was going on. There were reporters there and they rushed out to report the story <laughs> And one newspaper got it wrong. The next day, they, they said all the games were draws. And people were shocked many minutes later when it was announced that Chinook had actually won the game. And so that was amazing, amazing. And then something odd happened. I, uh, I dreamed of beating Tinsley. This was my obsession, right? This guy was almost perfect, and now we'd actually won a game. And so what would your reaction be? I mean, I dreamed of the moment going to go out and party and celebrate and yahoo have a great time I mean I, I used to lie in bed fantasizing about beating Tinsley and my poor wife would be beside me and she'd look at me sadly and say you're thinking about him again aren't you that night I went out with my team and we were actually very sad we'd grown to very fond of Marion and we knew how much this hurt him this was huge wound to his pride and so instead of being a party, it turned out to be a wake and a uh, very sad experience. The match was now 1-1 and a few games later, we played a brilliant game and we won again and we we're up two games to one. And I thought, oh my God, are we gonna win this? And then the next day, August the 23rd, 1992, forever burned in my memory, one of the darkest days of my life. I woke, got up that morning went down to the uh, tournament hall early and uh, unlocked the doors to get in and was stunned when the doors opened, I was blasted by heat. At night, you were, all the lights and power were supposed to be turned off and the air conditioning turned on. And what they did instead is they turned the air conditioning off and left everything 
on in a closed room. You know, there's some dispute as to how hot it was, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. It was very, very hot. We played the first game that day and Marion and I were on a stage, so it was even hotter up there. And we just played a few moves and I said, I'm cooking here. And he said, I'm cooking. And I said, well, we don't want to play. We just shook hands and agreed to a draw and then took an hour, another hour break so that things could cool down. And then we played game 18 of the match, fateful game 18. After 17 moves, the program's on the verge of declaring a win. It's got a huge advantage and it's nearing that threshold. And I clearly remember sitting on stage thinking, we're gonna beat this guy. I'm thinking about being world champion. And then all of a sudden the program goes beep, Tinsley draw. Turns out what we've done is we'd taken a book of all of Tinsley's games and we'd put it into the computer's memory and it had found a way that Tinsley could play a sequence of moves that would lead to a position in a game that he'd previously played that led to a draw. And given Tinsley's phenomenal memory, I knew he would find it. So all of a sudden, there was no win there. Even though it was a terrible position, there was an escape and he would find it and it would be a draw. And I remember sitting on stage thinking, get a reality check. Okay, so you're disappointed it's not a win, but okay, it's still a, a draw. It's another game down and you're still up two to one. But as I sat on stage watching the program, waiting for it to move, it became very disconcerting. It, has to play, it had to play 20 moves in an hour, which meant um, if you didn't play your 20 moves each hour, you forfeited. And at the time, we had about 35 to 40 minutes to play our last three, four moves to get to 20. And the program thought and thought and thought, and 23 minutes came and went, and I knew something was wrong. I'm not allowed to do anything to the program. I'm basically a babysitter during the game. And I watched there helplessly on stage as the program didn't move. And I can just remember people, the murmur in the audience as, as it slowly got louder and louder and you could hear people say, why isn't it moving? What's going on? And I sat there helplessly on stage as we forfeited. And Tinsley was very upset to win a game this way. And uh, Tinsley in his spare time was a Baptist minister and he believed that uh, he had disappointed God and that God was giving him a gift and he was very embarrassed that he had to take this gift from God. This was on a Saturday and he spent Sunday uh, redeeming himself by going to three churches uh, to thank God over and over and over again for this wonderful gift and apologizing to God for uh, letting God down by, you know, not winning, you know, not leading the match at that point. Uh, throughout our competitions, he's always portrayed himself as doing God's work. He didn't call us, you know, anything negative, but it was God's work for him. It was his mission as a disciple of God to defeat the unhuman computer. Uh, a religious magazine came up and interviewed me, and it was an uncomfortable interview, but um, at one point they asked me a question that I just wasn't prepared to answer. They said, quote, are you the devil, unquote. Not too many people have ever been asked that kind of a question, <laughs> but, but it did give rise to a lot of uh, religious feeling that, you know, Tinsley with his, his God-created intelligence versus Chinooka computer with its man-made technology. And, and so you could see um, the religious tones of, of trying to create something out of silicon and electricity that was challenging God's ultimate, one of ult his ultimate creations, uh, mankind and in fact the human brain. 
I don't know how to write a program to cause the machine to freeze, but it froze and we forfeited. So do we forfeit because of the, the machine problems? I have no idea to this day. Monday morning showed up and I had been up all weekend working on the program and I was wearing the same clothes Monday morning that I've been wearing on Saturday. Tinsley showed up, Natalie dressed, and uh, we played game 21. And Tinsley played me the ultimate compliment. He said, uh, the computer has earned my respect. I am going to play safe, draw checkers from now on. I'm not going to take any risks. I'm going to wait for the computer to make a mistake. And in game 25, we made a mistake. We lost the game. And Tinsley just played dull, boring draws, checkers the rest of the way until the last game of the match. We're down by one. We have to win. And I programmed the computer to not accept a draw. We had to win at all costs. And the program found a draw and rejected it because it had had to, and we ended up losing the game. So we lost the match four to two, but one of the games was on forfeit, and one of the games was the last game of the match because I had to win it. And I always think back to game 18, what would have happened had we not forfeited that game. And so it was a very long two years of work, and we got to play Tinsley again in 1994. And uh, had to be right that time. Uh, arrived in Boston uh, for the 1994 match, got everything set up, checked the place out, it was fine. Uh, Marion Tinsley arrived the night before the match, didn't get to see him. But I called him up the morning of the first game and, and uh, said, you know, Marion, let's walk in together. He hadn't been to the site, so I knew where it was. He said fine, he started walking. He was very, very quiet. We hadn't seen each other in probably two years and had a lot to talk about, but he didn't seem interested in talking. We're partway there, and he suddenly turned to me and he said, I had a dream last night. And in the dream, God told me that he loved you. And I was stunned, and, Mar and Raymond Keene, who was with me, was stunned too, because we both knew Marion well enough to know this just wasn't Marion. And we looked at him in surprise, and he looked at me and he shook his head very sadly and he said, yes, I know, it was a nightmare. Uh, game one happened and it was a, a dead draw. Uh, game two we played and uh, I was off doing media and I came back in the middle of the game and I look, took one look at the position and I was horrified. I mean, Tinsley's position was awful. It was a mess. And I looked at it and I'm not a checker player, but even I could see it was just in a lot of trouble. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, that's embarrassing. Are, are we winning? And I went back to look at the console and, and no, the computer had found a way. It was, it was a draw, um, but a lot of people were scratching their heads. I mean, God, how could Tinsley play into such a, what appeared to be hopeless position? And Tinsley found all the right moves in the end, and he drew. And he admitted afterwards, he said, that was a narrow escape. And he said, got to the critical point, he said, and there were six moves to choose from. And he said, I looked at five of them, and I was pretty sure they all, they all lost. And there was a sixth one, and it looked pretty bad. But I put my faith in God, and I just blindly played the move, and it drew. And I was thinking at the time, this is Marion Tinsley, the most perfect checker player of all, 
who just never makes a mistake. How could he be in a position where he just blindly puts his faith in God and says, I'm going to make this move and, and hope it all works out? And it did. It just seemed very strange. There was a lunch break, and um, during the lunch break, Marion Tinsley came to me and asked me uh, about Chinook's match with uh, Derek uh, Oldbury. We played Grandmaster Derek Oldbury in March of that year as preparation. Uh, Oldbury was the second strongest player in the world at the time, and he actually Oldbury was officially the world champion because Tinsley had resigned in 1992 to play us. Um, and so we, we, we played a 12-game match against Oldbury, and we kept it secret because uh, we didn't want to let anybody see the games. We didn't want to give away any of our preparation. Derek was a good sport, and we used it as a way to just test that everything was working. There were no bugs and anything. And we played the match, and uh, we won, and we were very happy. Um, unfortunately, uh, two months later in June, uh, Derek uh, passed away. So back in Boston, uh, at, at lunch, Tinsley says, you know, I know you played the match against Derek, and uh, unfortunately, Derek's no longer with us, so um, do you mind telling me, you know, how the match went? And I said with a little bit of pride, yeah, well, we played Derek, and uh, we won three games and lost none and tied nine. And so Tinsley nodded his head and thought about it for a moment. He said, so Chinook plays Oldbury. Chinook beats Oldbury. Oldbury dies. Therefore, Oldbury must have died of Chinookitis. Ha, 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 He goes off laughing. He finds this incredibly funny. He goes up to people and says, if you play Chinook, you're going to catch Chinook-itis, and you're going to die. Ha, 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 ha. And he's going on saying, you know, you're gonna, if you play Chinook, you're going to die. And you know, everyone's sort of looking at him very strangely like, well, why do you find this funny? You're playing Chinook. Anyway, the first couple of days go fine, and the end result after six games is six draws. Um, Chinook was awesome. We were never in trouble. Tinsley had been in trouble in one game, in a lot of trouble. He found a draw, and the, the program just looked unbelievably good, much, much better than 1992. So the next day, the third day of the match, uh, I phoned Tinsley up in the morning, as I'd done the previous days, to say, let's walk in, in, into work, into work. <laughs> into the match, and Tinsley immediately says, I want to resign the match and the title. What? What do you want to do? He said, well, I want to resign. I said, why? He said, well, I didn't sleep well last night. He said, I had an upset stomach. I said, Marion, if you had an upset stomach and you didn't sleep well, I'll talk to the match organizers. We'll postpone today's games. Don't want to play you when you're sick? Absolutely not. Uh, they'll understand. I contacted the match organizers and they were okay with that. Uh, but I was concerned, you know, Marion was 65 at the time and uh, so I offered to take him to the hospital, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, I literally spent the whole day at the hospital with Marion. Anyway, we're uh, visiting uh, sitting in a waiting room waiting for him to finally see a doctor and uh, I'm just reading a magazine and Marion's very quiet just sitting there 
And then he does something very strange. He reaches into his back pocket and pulls out his wallet. Yeah, he pulls out one of his business card, a business card like this, and says, I'm not going to need it anymore. Then he takes out his pen and starts writing on it. And he says, Jonathan, if anything should happen to me, here's the name and the address of my next of kin. You only use that phrase in one context, right? When, when somebody dies, uh, you, you want to contact the next of kin. And what he did is he wrote out on a card, and I still have the card, uh, the name and address and phone number of his sister who lived in Texas. With that, he just gave it to me and just went back to being silent. Eventually, he went in and saw the doctor, came out a while later and said, uh, Oh, everything's fine. The doctor uh, says I have an upset stomach. The doctor, just as a precaution, was going to take some at the end of the day. He said, Jonathan, I really appreciate this. This is one of the kindest, you know, what you did for me today was one of the kindest things, one of the nicest things anybody's ever done for me in, in my entire life. We bumped into Raymond Keene and the other, one of the other match organizers, David Levy. They were going for a lobster dinner and uh, Mary joined them. He'd never had lobster before. And, David and Raymond said he was in good spirits. Uh, Marion uh, said before he parted, he said, I feel really good now, I'm gonna play tomorrow. And I went to bed that night saying, Phew. very strange day, but okay, tomorrow we'll play again and see what happens. Day four, get up in the morning, phone Marion, let's go walking to the tournament site. And he says, I resigned the match in the title of the show. I said, Marion, what's wrong? He said, well, I had an upset stomach again last night. I said, well, Marion, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Again, if you're sick, uh, I'll, I'll contact the organizers. We'll postpone. I said, no, I've made up my mind. I resigned. I could not convince him to change. I did get one concession out of him. I said, look, Marion, you can't announce that you're just like that. Um, you're going to get some x-rays done. They're, they're going to be announced today. You know, you had an upset stomach. What if, you know, nothing shows up on the x-rays? I mean, an upset stomach could be an upset stomach. Said I resigned, but okay, we won't have a news conference to announce it until after the X-ray results are known. So I went in and told the team, and they were shocked. And the match arbiter and the sponsors of the match were shocked. And so myself and my team were at the computer museum in Boston. We're all set up, nothing to do. We're sitting around the board, just chatting and sort of all depressed. And who should show up but Marion? And what does he want to do? He wants to play checkers. He doesn't want to play games of checkers, he wants to analyze. So he'd set up positions and we would analyze them and Marion said, well, what does the computer think if I do this? And he gives the answer and we try this and that and everything. And he seemed to be having a lot of fun. One of the organizers came to me and he said, look, either he's too sick to play or he's not sick and he should play. And so finally one of the organizers went up to him and said, Marion, you know, it's after one o'clock, we do want to hold this news conference. Could you please phone about the x-rays? And he said, oh, oh yeah, I'll do that. So he disappeared into another room to, to make his phone call. Anyway, he eventually returned and uh, just sauntered in. Um, and uh, so the, the, the uh, match official said, did you make the phone call? Yeah, I made the phone call. But what was the result? And I said, well, I got the x-ray results. Okay. Well, well. So, oh, they found a lump on my pancreas, no big deal. Well, I don't know about you, but if somebody told me that they found a lump on my pancreas, um, I would be terrified. He showed no emotion. He just said, well, you know, 
I'll go with the, I'll go and get some tests tomorrow, no big deal. And then he sauntered off and disappeared. And we were all looking at each other, like this guy must have ice in his veins because um, I I would have been assessing more my mortality if somebody had told me that that uh, um, there was a potential problem, a uh, serious problem. The organizers uh, announced that uh, Tinsley. Uh, resigned and uh, we were officially the world champions so I have a picture of that moment and uh, I don't look particularly happy uh, none of us really look particularly happy uh, we won the world championship on uh, on forfeit I saw Marion went to the hospital and uh, because of the x-ray results they had to bring him in for more tests and I and I went to see him and he was very good spirits Joel etc. And um, uh, I said goodbye. And I didn't know that that would be the last time I saw him. The next day he checked himself out of the hospital and went back home. And uh, of course, uh, we eventually learned that it was pancreatic cancer. And uh, eight months after the match was over, he passed away. The whole way this thing ended just um, was very upsetting, very disappointing. You know, I was an ambitious person, uh, competitive. I wanted to become the world champion, and uh, uh, winning on forfeit against a, a possible—well, at the time we didn't know—but as it turned out to be a, a, a sick man, uh, you know, gives you absolutely no satisfaction. Not the way we wanted to win the world championship, and my life became miserable. Um, it was a most awful experience in my life. We then played a match against the second best player in the world, Don Lafferty, and I had done something really careless a couple weeks before the match, and I had been in a hurry and not properly tested a change and introduced a bug, and this bug was so rare, but it came up in a game and we lost a game to Lafferty, then we won a game and the match ended in a tie. So not only did we win the World Championship on forfeit, our first defense, we ended up in a tie. The American Checker Federation disputed the rules of the match, even though they were clear in writing that we had no right to claim ourselves. And then there was an internet campaign to uh, discredit Chinook. Lawyers for the American Checker Federation wrote legal challenges to my university president and my dean and my department. It was a terrible time. I had wanted to have to do nothing to do with checkers. In January 95, we uh, played a match against Lafferty because I wanted to clear our name and we won it. So we had at least one match for the World Championship. In 1997, we went to the US Championship. The results there were so crushing, we just, I retired after that. Uh, there were maximum 32 points. We scored 30 out of 32, we drew a few games. And second place was the current human world champion, Ron King. 22 out of 32, so he was eight points behind. I mean, you know, out of 32 games, we're a full eight points ahead of him. I'm, and uh, we won in our ma ma last match against King. We won three of the four games, and the other was a draw. So we were the official challenger for the World Championship again, but it didn't mean anything to us, so we just retired. retired. But I kept getting hate mail from checker players saying, you could never have beaten Tinsley. How dare you take Tinsley's throw? Tinsley was, was virtually perfect. Uh, you could never be perfect. And I took that as a challenge. He was virtually perfect, but he did occasionally lose himself. So if I solved the game of checkers and built a perfect checker player, I could then prove to people that I really was better than Tinsley. Because we never beat him in a match. 
And so I spent the next 10 years uh, working on building databases and search techniques to solve the game of checkers. According to the, the official timeline, which is on the university website about Chinook, there's a gap uh, between 1997 and 2001 where there wasn't really work being done. I was, I was wondering what, uh, what caused that gap, like what, what happened that made you kind of stop working on the project for that period? So I, I think in 97 I made a half-hearted attempt to m go to the next step, but I, I ran into a technology roadblock. And so 2001 came around and I could afford to buy some computers with 64-bit chips and now all of a sudden I had everything in place. I did, did a bit of the programming that was necessary to make sure everything worked as I scaled the program up to the bigger uh, database sizes that I needed. And in 2001 I started recomputing and game databases. Fairly early on I restarted computing uh, the, the databases and started the nine piece and I wasn't that far in for only a few months when uh, a friend uh, he was computing the databases for his own program and very early on he said well, I've got a discrepancy and we tracked it down and uh, no idea how but somewhere somehow one of the seven piece databases which was computed in 1990 and passed all the verification tests in 1992. In 2001, it was corrupted. It was wrong. I was just sick to my stomach because who knows when it happened and who knows what results were, were bogus because of this. So I said to hell with it. I threw everything away and I started again scratch. Started with the one piece all the way through and I grabbed every computing resource I could and just started accelerating it. And so 2001 it started full force. I became obsessed again. I was going to do this. By 2005, four years later, I had uh, all the 10-piece databases in place. And now in 2004, actually 2004, I started the program at the top start of the, the start of the game and it would be doing searching and every time anytime it searched and hit a position with 10 pieces or less on the board it could look it up and get the win loss or draw in january 2005 we had a we had, got our first result there's a famous checkers opening called the white doctor it's one of the most difficult ones it had a special place for me because the white doctor was the the opening that we lost to tinsley in the 1992 match in the white doctor the very last game of the match, I set the program to treat the last game. A draw was no good. A draw had, was equivalent to a loss. We played that game and we lost it. And it was an opening that Tinsley uh, had a lot of interest in, so I decided I was going to solve the White Doctor. So I started it going, and in January 2005, we got it. We backed up all the way to the, the start of the opening that we had proven that it was a draw. And of course, hectically verifying that. You have to remember that uh, although maybe solving a checkers opening like the White Doctor, nobody really cares about like the average person on the street doesn't know what the White Doctor is or cares what the White Doctor is and doesn't even care that it's a draw. But um, the White Doctor um, position uh, opening requires like uh, a billion billion positions, probably a hundred billion billion positions to be examined. And we've been developing techniques to 
make the search smarter, eliminate things that we didn't need to search, etc. We were able to solve it not in 10 to the 20th amount of work, but 10 to the 14th. In other words, it was a mi 1 million times less work than you would expect would be needed. It was hard to tell when the computation would finish, but in April two th 2007, I, it, I knew it was happening. It, was, it, was, it could happen any day now. I was down in California and uh, for meetings at Google. I gave a talk at Google, I met some friends at Google, and every day, of course, I'm checking on the progress of, of the computation. Brought my daughter along, and um, we're driving around, and it's getting close to, to dinner time, and I just said, we need to get a hotel. I told her, we need a hotel now. We hadn't booked any hotel anywhere, so fine, and I said, you know, here's a place, we got to do it, I want to check the computer, I have to check now. And so we went up, and uh, I got my computer set up, and I logged in, and went to, to see what was happening with the proof. And the first thing that happened was all the machines were down. And I swore, because you, you know that happens sometimes, like there's a power outage or yeah. something like that. But it's a real hassle. Uh, at the time, I don't know, I was running on 50 to 100 computers, so when things went down, the computers would be in various states, like you might have been in the middle of something, and so... You had to clean it up. If you're in the middle of something, just throw that away and restart it. So you had to go around to all the machines and, and get them restarted and, and undo what the last thing it was doing. So I was upset because I probably spent a few hours just cleaning up and making sure that no error was introduced, right? So my daughter's there and she says, too bad, Dad. And so the first thing I do is uh, go to the log file. Uh, to see you know, what had happened. And so I, print, I printed on the screen the, the tail end of the file, and all it said was, ta-da. Because, you know, it's something you put in the script way back in the beginning, you never expect that message to come. Yeah. But the reason why everything was, nothing was running, because there was nothing left to run. I'd have to check my book to get the time, but um, I looked at it, and, I, and it gave the timestamp. 6.05, something like that. And I said, oh my God, what is this? I looked at my watch, it was 6.06. I mean, I literally, after 18 years of computation, I logged in within, a, within less than 60 seconds, almost precisely as the moment the computation ended. And my only explanation is that the internet has psychic abilities. <laughs> and what was happening in Edmonton somehow hit me. It was great, it was exciting, and I had my momentary celebration only to be muted. Because uh, I knew this day was coming and I had prepared a paper to be submitted to the journal Science. But Science only publishes, has to be the first to publish new results. And so knowing that I'd solved the game of checkers was great, but I couldn't tell anybody. <laughs> and that was April 25th, uh, 2007, and the announcement um, when the paper finally came out and the announcement wasn't until the first or second week of July. So for literally two and a half months, uh, my daughter knew because she was there, my wife knew, and uh, the rest of the, uh, the, of the team knew because we were writing this paper and we had to put in the, the final results so they knew. Nobody else did and I had to keep it secret. So two and a half months, that was a very long two and a half months. <laughs> Uh, we did prove that Checkers was a draw, which means from the start of the game, uh, the program will never lose. If you play well, 
um, the game will end in a draw. If you make a mistake, you'll lose. But the program will never lose. And uh, we have that uh, true for the start of the game. If you give me any position, any arbitrary position, we can't give you that answer. But for the start of the game, we can, and, and we will never lose. So that's the proof. Uh, um, that the game is a draw, and we can, and the proof is on the web. You can try playing any game against the program, and you'll you you just won't win. It's very powerful to use uh, search and other techniques like statistics, and you can learn an awful lot just through lots of search and applying statistics and machine learning rules to uh, build very, very powerful systems that can outperform humans. And to some people, including somebody like Marion Tinsley, this is very disconcerting that these techniques, which by all human standards are dumb, yet they achieve phenomenal results. Uh, you know, my checkers program, okay, so it solved the game of checkers, but it looked at billions, trillions of checker positions. No human would ever do that, right? Uh, the, the way I like to think about it is the human brain is an architecture for intelligent be, uh, computations. But a computer is also an architecture for intelligent computation. And each of these architectures, the brain and the computer, have different strengths and different weaknesses. Think about the human brain. There are things that you and I can do very well because of the way the, the, way the brain is wired. We're very good at speech. We're very good at, at vision. I mean, what you and I are doing right now is absolutely incredible. When you think about the amount of data that's going forward, you're looking at me, you're seeing a whole bunch of things, a lot of things that are completely irrelevant. You're filtering it out. You know that I'm here. You know this is a table, this is a phone, these are lines. You're doing pattern matching and recognition. And we're very good at, at those kind of things. The computer, on the other hand, also has strengths. It's very good at doing things like uh, if you ask it to do something a billion times repetitiously, it'll do it, right? If you ask it to compute uh, third-order partial differential equations to 64 digits of accuracy, no problem. There it is. If you ask it to memorize a billion or a trillion or a gazillion pieces of information, no problem. It'll do it, right? And so what we've learned is that the human architecture for intelligence and the computer architecture for intelligence have different strengths. But what's really intriguing is they're complementary. The computer's strengths are your weaknesses. But conversely, your strengths are the computer's weaknesses. Now, if you're going to build a solution, you're going to do something like, say, a checker playing program, and you want to put it in, uh, develop it, uh, um, for a computer, you should play to the strengths, not the weaknesses. My solution caters to the fact that the computer will do billions of things and does precise mathematical calculations and can memorize vast amounts of data. But if I teach you checkers, I'm not going to say the first thing you should do is do this a billion times and memorize all this information. It won't work. When you, a human, develops a solution to a checkers, they take advantage of the kinds of things that humans do easily and naturally. And so you always come up with a solution that caters to the strengths. We have a, a here at the University of Alberta built a superhuman um, two-player limit uh, Texas Hold'em poker program. Uh, that can't be solved in the same sense as checkers, um, um, but it is superhuman and uh, 
So I think that that's a more relevant question. What, what game are we going to see where computers can see humans? So uh, multiplayer poker might be coming down the line or low, uh, no limit poker. The big excitement is in, in computer Go. Uh, Go is much more complicated a game than chess. And um, there's been new algorithms and new ideas there that have made huge advances in, in computer Go. And so uh, I think that's where you're going to see some of the big breakthroughs. Thank you so much for giving me all your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Cooper, one of the Relatively Prime funders, and that is it for Relatively Prime today. We want to thank the guests Jonathan Schaefer, as well as the implied guest and the world's best checkers player, Chinook. And the musicians, SR Cafe, MGEN, Joe Nathan 007, Science CTN, XLCNTR, Mark Alexander, The Dead Soul, Amethyst Deceiver, and OCE without all of whom this would not have been possible. If you want to find out more about the guests or the music, or if you want to discuss the show, please join us over at relprime.com. And while you're on the internet, why not head over to iTunes and leave a review of the show? It really does help other people find the show. And if you have any feedback about the show, just email samuel at samuel at acmescience.com. That is his personal email address. Relatively Prime is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, and any remixes are greatly looked forward to. Thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for the next episode.